0: Ladies, in this episode, you might hear the odd swear word, frank disclosure or graphic description. Just wanted to let you know in case you have little ears around or are listening at work.
1: Can you say vulva? Vava. I've never heard... Can you say clitoris? Clitoris. <laughs> hey, I'm Yumi Steins and that's my mum, Yoshiko. Yes, that's a thing. And this is actually the first time in my life that we have ever had a conversation like this. I know that. I know, but I never heard you say any of those words. No. Do you remember talking about sex with us? Maybe not. It was kind of um a bit taboo for parents to talk about sex to kids? It was awkward, I remember. It, it's all very awkward. Awkward? Yes, but conversations with your best girlfriends are different, right? Have you ever looked at your vulva? <sighs> Oh, God, I think yes, I have, because yes, I have. Yes? Never. I've never done the mirror thing. Can we move on to the next question? (laughs) (laughs) There's this idea that women talk with each other about everything, but I'd argue that there are still some massive no-go zones. These are the subjects heaps of us just won't talk about because we feel awkward or embarrassed. Well, in this podcast, we're going to head right into those no-go zones. In every episode, we'll dive into a topic that's usually off-limits. And sometimes it might make you feel uncomfortable or squeamish, but that's okay, we'll be in it together. So let's get started. Ladies, we need to talk about our vaginas and vulvas. So, your vagina. How well do you know your vagina? Hmm. Put it this way. If your vagina turned up at your front door, how would you greet it? Coldly, barely looking at it, dismissive? Or like a beloved old friend whose likes and dislikes you've memorised, whose name you'll never forget? Hmm. I mentioned names because loads of us use the word vagina to describe everything inside our undies. But vagina is actually the tubular muscle inside your body that connects your uterus to the outside world. The bits that you can see, the flaps, the lips, the clit, that's your vulva. Oh. And, yes, many of us already know this, but we're still using the wrong words. So our vulva shows up at the front door and we're like, hey, vagina, how are you going? It's kind of rude. <coughs> Why are we still using the wrong words? I think the word vagina couldn't be uttered for
2: many, many years. Right. It's just come out of the closet fairly recently. <laughs> yep. So vulva is like the next level.
1: While my mum did not talk to me about sex or my vagina and could barely muster the courage to say the word period, when I was a kid there was one woman who never let me down, someone I actually felt I could trust. She was Dolly Doctor. Doctor. Hi, Yumi. Hi. I didn't even realise that you were Asian all these years. No, I'm <laughs>
2: half Asian. Yeah, I'm Eurasian. Yeah, it was like was very me. exotic when I was little.
1: Holy shit, Dolly Doctor was Asian. I wish I'd known that when I was a kid because I thought I was the only Asian female in the whole country. If you didn't grow up in Australia, Dolly Doctor was a health advice column in Dolly, a magazine for teenage girls, and her column was the section that everyone would always go to first because it was where the really raw and real and embarrassing topics were handled with complete and utter calm. Dolly Doctor is also known in the real world as Associate Professor Melissa Kang. She's a GP and a researcher. Weren't you sort of named the most frequently correct authority on women's sexual
2: health? That was a really cool study actually that some researchers from the University of Newcastle published last year where they rated Dolly Doctor's Advice as full marks, I think. Yeah,
1: Um, basically you got 100%. Yeah, I did, yeah. (laughs) First time in my life probably. So here's the thing. When I gave birth the first or second time um the midwife said do you want to have a look down there mm. and she had a mirror in her hand mm. and I remember kind of going ew no <laughs> like yeah. are you crazy as if I want to look like that and I think I actually said no I know what minced meat looks like because oh, right. <laughs> I had just given birth yeah but now I kind of think because that was 15 years ago mm-hmm. my first kid I think um you know that was a bit sort of self-hating that I wouldn't look at my own vulva would you recommend looking at your private parts. I don't think it's something you need to regret if you haven't had a look. Well, I could always have a look yeah. now, couldn't yeah, I? Yeah, that's right. I mean it's kind of like looking in the eye of Sauron, you know, from <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Like we're sort of not ever told to look right mm. at our vaginas mm. if we can, or our vulvas if we can avoid it. How would I go through that process of taking a look at myself?
2: Lots of ways. I mean, you can look lying down with a mirror. You need a mirror obviously put it between your legs. You'd see your pubic hair, which was covering your outer labia. You'd perhaps spread the lips of your vagina open a little bit and you would then see the inner labia, which don't have any pubic hair on them. You may then see the clitoris hiding underneath the clitoral hood, which is a bit like a foreskin. You might see the urethral opening where the urine comes out and then the opening of your vagina and just below that your perineum. Uh, if you were able to then put a finger inside, you'd feel kind of soft, squishy, spongy tissue mm-hmm. that's a little bit uh, ridged, wavy, and you could possibly get your fingers all the way up to touch your cervix. Some women can do that quite easily. Once you feel your cervix, you know that it's there because it feels like the tip of your nose. And it's
1: right at that point that your kids walk in. <laughs> yeah, that's <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, strap yourself in because here goes. The anatomy lesson I never got in school. Mm. Imagine we're all shrunk down to tiny, itty-bitty little people about yes. the size of a thumb. Mm. And we're going to take a tour mm. and go inside mm. of it. Can you talk us through our journey? So you go in. It's kind of soft and squishy. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> now you might come across a bit of hymen mm-hmm. or hymen or remnant. So that's a piece of skin-like tissue near the opening of the vagina. And contrary to popular belief and myth, it's not this sheath that covers the entire opening. Mm -hmm. It's usually really quite stretched by the time you're going through puberty. Going beyond that then, you would see kind of wavy, ridge-like lining is the best way to describe it. And that's what we call the mucosa of the vagina. And you'd reach the cervix. The cervix is the bottom of the uterus that protrudes into the top of the vagina. So you can actually get behind the cervix and the vagina goes up a little bit further than oh, that. Oh, OK. And when you're taking a pap smear, for example, it's where you sort of scrape around to get the pap smear cells from. Mm-hmm. If we could dilate the cervix a little bit and get inside, we would end up in the, what we call the neck of the uterus mm-hmm. and then we'd get into the main body of the uterus. And in a non-pregnant but post Pubescent woman that's kind of thought to be the size of a pear, small pear, upside down. The inside of the uterus varies enormously with menstrual cycle, so it can be the lining of it can be very thick and, and bloody to very thin. Uh, and the inside of that is quite small when you're not pregnant, so you could have a little look around in there, be pretty dark. But on either side of the uterus, you've got your fallopian tubes. So you can go right or left and head towards the ovary.
1: So let's go left.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll go left and towards the left ovary. Heading left up into the fallopian tube, that goes along a few centimetres till you get to your left ovary.
1: And there there you kind of stop, really. Okay. Yep. When my best friend was younger, she tried to put, she legitimately tried to put a tampon into her pee hole. Right. Well, that would be very difficult.
2: I know. It Possibly must. anatomically <laughs> impossible
1: and quite painful, I would imagine. Very yes. My eyes are watering yes. just telling you that yeah. story. So what should I be teaching my teenage daughters about mm. their vulvas?
2: I think that we should be teaching all young women to know that part of their body as much as any other part of their body. I think part of the problem with women's sexuality in general is that the vulva, the vagina, remain shrouded in mystery Mm. and we do avoid talking about them when we use euphemisms. So I think it's really just about very matter-of-factly describing anatomy and what happens when girls go through puberty we start to worry about sexual function and avoiding giving them messages that might make them think too much about sex. I think that's still <laughs> still a real issue. Yeah, right. So I think when we start to talk to our daughters about sex and relationships, of course we want to talk about consent and feeling ready and all of those things, but I think what we then fail to teach them is about how pleasurable sex can be.
1: The thing every woman wants to make sure of is that she is normal. Mm. Is, that a, is that common to your experience? Everyone just wants to be told you're fine, everything's okay? Yes,
2: in fact, probably the most frequently asked question in Dolly Doctor in 23 years is am I normal? That cuts across all questions. Mm. And I suppose a lot of my answers were yes, that is normal. I think the most common question that I started to get in recent years from Dolly Doctor is the question about the inner labia protruding beyond the external labia. So a lot of anxiety about that. But the main message is that all vaginas, vulvas, labia, hymen's are all different. So there is no one size fits all literally.
1: This growing concern about normal-looking labias that Dolly Doctor noticed, well, this is something we should talk about. From 2000 to 2013, the number of women having surgery to change their genitals more than tripled. And these numbers don't include women who paid for their surgery privately. The procedure they're having is called labiaplasty. Dr Gemma Sharp is a psychologist who's been looking at why women have labiaplasty.
3: So from my research, uh, it shows that women are primarily having it for appearance reasons. So they don't like the appearance of their inner lips or their labia minora. They don't like how they protrude beyond the outer lips. And so they get labiaplasty so that they have a smooth curve or a smooth surface.
1: But where are women getting this idea from, that their vulva needs to be smooth? It seems to come down to what we see. So our censorship laws don't allow us to view images of the inner labia protruding beyond the outer labia, which means in a lot of media, like most porn, you only see smooth. This lack of access to realistic-looking vulvas plus the Brazilian waxing trend are just a couple of reasons why women are going under the knife.
3: There are also physical reasons too, I must add. Mm. And uh, these may include things like discomfort while bike riding, horse riding, um, discomfort during sex as well. So sort of more mechanical reasons too, but appearance reasons seem to be the main motivator.
1: Can you talk us through because I, I have never seen this procedure. like I have never watched one of those shows you know that shows you the nitty-gritty of it. Is it a, is it a general anesthetic and then what does the surgeon actually do to your body?
3: That's it can be done with general or local anesthetic women are sort of often put their legs up in stirrups Mm -hmm. and then the uh, surgeon will use the scalpel to cut the tissue and the cutting methods, there's quite a few different ones and I think surgeons are still working out which method leaves sort of the best aesthetic appearance afterwards. Mm. And what can sometimes happen is that if um, too much uh, inner lip tissue is removed, it can make the clitoral hood tissue look quite prominent. So it might even look like a small penis. (laughs) (laughs) So often what they'll do is they'll also cut the clitoral hood tissue too so it looks more balanced. Yes, uh, it's quite amazing, isn't it? I'm crossing my legs, Gemma. I'm crossing them tight. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Does it affect your pleasure if you've had this surgery? It can do. Um, certainly loss of sensation is something that can happen. I mean, imagine if there's scarring as well. Like, obviously, the labia is very elastic. And if you've lost some of that elasticity, then sex can certainly be more uncomfortable.
1: Is it like, um, you know, when you get a nose job or a boob job and, and you look at photos, so you sort of pick... You pick from a catalogue.
3: <laughs> That's um, you're actually right there. You can uh, you can take in pictures and say, you know, I want to look like this particular person. In fact, I read a research article that did say that women were taking in pictures of porn stars, saying that they wanted to look like a particular porn star. Um, I think there's probably a little bit less variation in labial pictures than there is in say nose pictures. Mm, Sure. Can you tell me a little bit about your research? Sure. So my research looked at both women's motivations for labiaplasty and also what they got out of it. Mm. And my motivation studies, it showed that it was primarily an appearance-based reason for women to undergo surgery. And there are a couple of Uh, main sociocultural factors that were promoting this appearance concern. Mm. And that was the way women's genitals were shown in the media, as well as negative comments from partners and friends.
1: So when you spoke to women who'd had this surgery,
3: were they usually happy that they'd gone through with it? Uh, overwhelmingly yes. Mm. I think, um, yeah, they tend to be happy with uh, how their labia looks and how it functions after surgery. But I will say that my research showed that it tended not to lead to broader benefits like that increase in self-esteem and increase in sexual confidence that they may have been seeking, may or may not have Uh been seeking. So do you have specific reasons why women shouldn't be having labiaplasty? It is a bit concerning that we still don't know the long term consequences of labiaplasty. Like it hasn't been around that long, so I think it's still um, as may as much as we may become more accepting of it. I think we still need to do the research about what's happening with these women in the longer term. Gemma, why do you think it's important that we talk about labiaplasty? I think labiaplasty represents uh, women being dissatisfied with their genital appearance, which is a real taboo topic in society. I think we're far more comfortable with talking about penises, although we're not entirely comfortable, but really women's genitals are It's just, um, it's really shame. Women feel dirty, disgusting, ugly. So I think if we can start talking about labiaplasty and genital anatomy in general, it can only really help young women and girls who are worried about this area. At least if they're concerned, they might be able to reach out more easily, Mm. perhaps not go to the internet as their first port of call. So I think let's just start a conversation about these issues.
1: Normal. When we were working on this episode, everything kept coming back to that one word, normal. Like, is my vagina normal? Am I normal? Are my bits normal like everyone else's bits? We asked you to send us your stories. And one email really stood out. It was from a woman called Christy, whose vagina really is different. And the journey she's been on has led her to some pretty surprising places. Christy told us that growing up, she was like all the other girls she knew as a child and young teen. But unlike her girlfriends, she never got her period. So at 17 years old, her mum took her to
0: the doctor, who sent her off for a bunch of tests. So essentially they were doing the ultrasounds and there was nothing there where there should be.
1: Christy was told she had MRKH. It's a condition which affects about one in every 5,000 women. And it means that Christy was born with no uterus and no cervix. And what she was told
0: when she was diagnosed
1: was pretty confronting.
0: They use language like, you won't have children, you can't have sex without any kind of intervention. That's kind of it. That's kind of where it's left. Christy also has a very short vagina. It was born with, I think, what they would call a dimple, so probably about half a centimetre. Like a fingerprint or a thumb? Like a fi- like a fingerprint. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. It's just that it doesn't keep going the way that uh, other vaginas go. It hits a wall. It hits a wall. And that yep. wall is your body, like saying... That, that wall is that's,
0: my body. That's the <laughs> yeah, end. There's no more to <laughs> that's see. That's the end. That's it. Uh I have a perfectly functioning ovaries so my hormone cycles uh-huh. are exactly the same as they are for women who have a uterus and have a period so normal breast development my vulva is completely what would be normal yep. i guess so it's it's purely internal so it's it's everything internal so there's two options. Often there's a surgical option of having a neovagina vagina constructed or there's a vaginal dilation option, which was the one that I was given. So that is basically stretching the hole to make a vagina. Mm-hmm. So I was given these, this kind of glass test tube kind of thing. Literally you press it where your vagina would be. Right, and you sort of um, just stretch that
1: area. Stretch it. It's a process that I think transgender women post-op go through as well. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Is it painful?
0: Yeah, it's painful, and my experience was that it was very emotionally traumatic. Um, it acted as a really central point of reminding me of my condition, and that really kind of medicalising your sexuality, like the last thing that you want done
1: to your sexuality, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. But, oh, but yeah. I guess how did you get? How did you kind of wrestle it back? I think the first thing was becoming aware of it aware that i had experienced some kind of trauma
1: mm.
0: in just being poked and prodded by doctors and being put in this you have something wrong with you mm. you're abnormal and i've had to create a vagina by by pain by putting something inside me and stretching it so then trying to switch that from that very medicalized and painful to an extent experience to all of a sudden switching it and becoming oh now i'm a sexual being and It was really, really difficult. So you mentioned that you're married.
1: Um, Mm -hmm. You met your husband when you were 17. I did. the same year that you discovered that you have MRKH, you met your partner, your life partner. I did.
0: Yeah, a couple of months after, maybe about six months after I was diagnosed. Mm. um, And we've been together for about 17 years now.
1: And did you tell him straight away?
0: Pretty close to straight away, actually, because obviously we were 17, we were having sex, and I was like, no, we can't. Mm. I've got this thing wrong with me. So, yeah, it, w- it was pretty close to away. So he's been throughout the process, the whole, the whole story, I guess.
1: So do you have vaginal s- intercourse?
0: We do, yeah. So that's been a process. So in one way, I've never had to navigate the whole uh, dating with this condition, which I think can be really, really hard. Um, we have great sex life now, but there was, you know, a period where it was really, really difficult. Mm.
1: What, what are the things people don't realise affect you with your condition MRKH?
0: I think people don't realise how much it affects your identity as a woman. The purpose in, of, of a woman is often just have sex and have babies. And when you take that away, uh, it, has, it has a really big impact on how, where you find your place in a world that isn't often accepting of women who don't fit into those categories. So tell me about like arriving to where you, getting to where you are now. Two years ago, anyone besides my husband really didn't know that I had this condition. I've only become open about it uh, quite recently. Mm. When you're kind of 17 and everyone's getting their periods, you you kind of just go, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. And then everyone's kind of at uni and going through that period of having sex with people and relationships. And now at my age, there's people having children and then there's that. There's something about not being able to connect. You just don't quite fit you don't fit in with, especially with other women, you don't get into a stage where today where I'm able to pretty comfortably talk about it, um, it's been quite a lot of soul-searching and a lot of hurdles.
1: So you wrote to us, how do you develop a healthy and happy sex life and individual sexual identity when your sex organs have been diagnosed as abnormal, dysfunctional, and they've been completely medicalized. Mm. So tell us about how,
0: you, how you've answered that question for yourself. I took probably a, an extreme reaction. So I was fortunate enough to have long service leave from work, so I, I took last year off work and went and did a degree in sexology. At Curtin University. So I've always been interested in women's health and my experience just I was really frustrated and annoyed that I have a condition where like, impacts your ability to have sex, your body, your mm. vagina,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but nobody talked about it. So I educated myself. So then I, um, I developed a website that I've called The Happy V and it's basically what I... What I wish I would have had when I was diagnosed with this condition and learning to be happy with my body, Mm. I'm just one version of everybody whose bodies may be a little bit different.
1: So Dolly Doctor said that the most common thing she was asked in her 20 years of answering the most secretly held questions of young girls and women was, am I normal? And talking to Christy taught me that the spectrum of normal is far greater than I thought. And treating your genitals like a hostile presence that you're barely on speaking terms with and certainly wouldn't make eye contact with is insane. Maybe treating your vagina and vulva like a good friend who deserves to be called by the correct name, whose needs are looked after, is probably going to be better for you and your sexuality and your health. The more we let go of our bullshit fears, shame and squeamishness to talk about our bits, our fannies, our tushies, minkies, she twats, pussies, vagas, fujitsus or dare I even say our vaginas and vulvas, the less mysterious they'll seem. Also, we spoke to Elizabeth Farrell, a woman so wise about the vagine, that she has won an Order of Australia medal. We put to her a bunch of frequently asked pussy questions like this one. Is it possible to ever lose something in your vagina?
3: Absolutely.
1: Um, That was not the answer I was expecting to that question. You can hear this bonus episode exclusively on the ABC Listen app, the app which allows you to download or listen live to really great ABC content wherever you are, whenever you want. And while you're there, you'll find another really great podcast called How Do You Sleep at Night by Sarah McVean. Sarah, I've listened to the episode on The Killer and I got goosebumps. It was actually electrifying. It's pretty intense listening, I've got to say. So I can't believe you spent time with this man who killed two people, but you humanised him. Well, the whole point of how do you sleep at night is to try and understand the different moral codes that people live by. It's kind of testing this idea that nobody thinks they're a bad person, Mm. you know, whether they've done something big or small. It's about people that live life in the of of judgment and so I wanted to know how you actually can possibly live with yourself when you know that you've killed somebody mm. else. So Sarah, the bit that broke my heart was when you spoke to his tiny little mum about when he was sent to prison. Did you tell people where he'd gone? Uh, at first, no because I was well, I suppose ashamed, but not
2: ashamed um, He's my son. I never missed a week, did I?
0: Yeah, until I knocked the visits on the head. Yeah, well, that was your choice, not mine.
1: And it's not a simple, straight-up mother-son relationship, is it, Sarah? No, it explores the impact their relationship has had on on Charlie's life. Mm. And I've got to say, it really shocked me. Charlie's mum was the organist in the church. She was an Avon lady for 30 years. She... She never expected, I guess nobody ever expects, that their baby is going to grow up to kill someone. Mm. And this episode explores how she dealt with that, but also how he tries to deal with it on a daily basis. You need to hear it. The episode is The Killer and the podcast is called How Do You Sleep At Night? To find it, head to the new ABC Listen app and download it right now. Thanks heaps, Sarah. Thanks, Yumi. I'm Yumi Steins. We'll see you next time on Ladies, We Need To Talk.